you come up with these two opposing thoughts as far as debt is concerned. You've got the Dave Ramsey side where no debt is acceptable uh, unless it's your primary home. Uh, even then, you've, you've got some restrictions on, on how he likes to do it. Then you kind of have the Robert Kiyosaki side, which says uh, leverage everything because this is good debt and that uh, you should be participating as much as you can in borrowing money for real estate. I struggle between those two different thoughts, and I appreciated both of their, their points of view. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Alrighty, everybody, welcome back. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 163. Jace, what's going on? How are you? Doing great. How you doing? Good. Feeling good after Thanksgiving. We're in December now. I know, it's seems crazy. like a, a weird year, but it's gone fast, I think. It has, back yeah. At it. it has gone yeah. extremely fast, at least, especially the last like four or five months, I feel like. I feel like it was just summer yesterday. Totally. Now, all of a sudden, it's December. And I think weather stayed pretty good, right? I mean, sad, but we won't. I don't know what your plans are for the holidays, but usually we ski. So we'll see if any snow comes down for that. Yes, I thought they got a little bit of snow, like 15 or 20 inches at the resorts, but none of them are open yet or just a couple are open? No, I think they are. I think they are, but like, I mean, like 15 runs or something. Yeah, you know, yeah. Nothing, nothing too big. So we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully we can make it for a day or so. I mean, we'll have to be untold. I think they're going to be open too. We'll see. So interestingly, I had a friend today send me a report from Vanguard that's titled How America Invests 2020. So I haven't seen this before. I don't know if you have, but it seems like this is probably something they come out with every year. Mm -hmm. And it just talks about asset allocation depending on, I mean, very split, age, income. So I just thought it'd be interesting to t talk about a few things here. So one of the things that popped out, I'm just kind of skimming. I mean, it's it's pretty technical and it's whatever here, 20 something, pa 58 pages. So there's a lot of information here, but I'm just looking at the allocation because I think that's something that we all find interesting. And obviously our millionaires come on and share their allocation. So of just the whole portfolio, it, it says 5 million households that have accounts with Vanguard here. It says about 67% of their accounts are in equity, 18% in fixed income, and then the remainder, which is about 15 to 21, depending on your split of equity and fixed income is in cash. So I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, I, I think that's more than we've seen with our millionaires in terms of cash, right? 15 to 20%. Yeah, no, it definitely is. You know, one other thing that, that I'm finding interesting in this report is just the trend. And I, I think we've seen this just in general with our millionaires and also with investors in general, the percentage of actively managed funds versus index funds has really, let me put it this way, index funds has stayed pretty stable over the last five years, but actively managed funds have significantly decreased in terms of what people are putting their money into. So actively managed funds have, have dropped drastically. The index funds have stayed fairly fairly steady in this report. They've got basically 71% of, of investors' money is basically in index funds, which is what Vanguard you know, is, is, is famous for, right? So I find so that- they're not putting it in, in more index funds and they're pulling it out of actively managed funds, where are they putting it, do you think? Yeah, well, going back to that cash, there's a lot more cash. You know, in 2015, 
9% was in cash, 2019, 14% in cash. So I've seen a 5%, almost a 50% increase, but 5% in, in, in total value put into cash. Yeah, really interesting. And then it breaks out people's holdings based on their net worth. So this says, or, or not net worth rather, but a balance. Portfolio balance. Yeah. yeah, portfolio balance. So it says if it's over 500,000, people's allocation is 64% of that is in equity, 23% is in fixed income, and the average cash allocation is only 13%. So a little bit less. I don't know if there's some bias there, right? Because if you're holding cash with Vanguard, that's really not the purpose, right? I don't think they have operating bank accounts. If yeah, it's just probably in a money market type account. Or just, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So I guess that doesn't tell the whole picture of what I'm saying. I guess is what I'm saying, right? If they have a Chase account or a Wells Fargo or whatever, they may be holding even more cash than that. Yeah, one other thing I find interesting is just in general, the balances of, of people and investors has gone up over the last few years, which is, I guess, something to expect, especially when the Fed pumps as much money into the market as, as they have. But the other thing is some of these, you know, median balances relative to ages are much lower than I would have expected. You know, at median age 40, the value of these accounts on average is $16,000. You get up to late 40s, it goes up to 110000 But that is something that we have not seen with our millionaires, right? We usually have fairly large, at least the ones that are invested, you know, in in the markets or in a retirement account. They've got a significant amount of holdings uh, in equities or in index funds or ETFs or or some other type of uh, investment. But once again, this is just Vanguard. Super interesting report. Yeah, pretty interesting. And then then just in closing here, I mean, you can go check this out. Again, it's Vanguard's 2020 report, How America Invests. But they split out uh, percentage holdings in domestic equity versus international. And it says about 64% is in domestic equity and 17% in domestic bonds. So about hmm. 81% is in domestic holdings versus just 19 in international equity and international bonds. So, And I think that's been – we probably haven't seen 20%. I mean the most popular thing is obviously VTSAX, just the total stock market, but – I think we've had some that invest, have like the Dave Ramsey approach where they do invest in international, but not as much as you'd think. No, and I was just thinking about that. That is something that is interesting amongst our millionaires. Not as many have quote unquote international exposure, but in a way, a lot of us do though, because we're essentially a global economy. And so a lot of companies that you do have exposure to do have international operations or holdings, you know, amongst themselves. So, and this may be a discussion topic for another day, but just do you have enough exposure to the world if you invest in just domestic stocks and how much exposure do you really have? Because we are really so, such a global economy, you know, much more than maybe we were 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Good point. I think I I heard on or saw a CNBC article today that said over like 65% or 70% of companies in the S&P have a big exposure to, to international revenue and international driven business. Yeah, international revenue and international supply chain, you know? Totally, totally. So anyway, that, that's pretty interesting. Go check it out if you're interested in that. It's a, it's a little dry, but fun to see some of that stuff. So last week, we had an interesting interview with Lloyd. He's a former teacher turned real estate investor. So he was a teacher for, I believe, like 10 or 12 years. And he started building up his real estate portfolio on the side and then stopped teaching and started investing in his real estate about when his income replaced his his teaching income or a little bit beyond that. But an interesting interview there. We haven't had, I don't think, a teacher on that's quit, right, for something else. So that was interesting. Today's show, we have a great interview with David. He's recently retired, has a net worth of over $6 million, about 
He's a real estate developer. He has about $2 million of it in real estate, about $3 million in IRAs, one of the higher IRA balances we've seen, and about six hundred k in deferred compensation. Also has some self-directed IRAs, which he plans to use for future real estate investments. So lots of moving pieces here with David and, and pretty interesting, especially because the balances are higher, right? I mean, $3 million in IRA is pretty big. Yeah. So- so thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. If you're interested in any multifamily or commercial syndication opportunities, please feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to connect. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in. As always, feel free to leave us a review. We love reviews when you do. We got uh, a review this week from JJJAQ, Jack. I don't know how you say it. This has become my absolute favorite podcast. Each millionaire story is both unique and familiar. The types of investments, careers, and paths to wealth to wealth vary, but the patterns of frugality, continuing education, and intentionality are the common thread throughout really inspiring and interesting content. So thanks for that review, and thanks for anyone who leaves it, helps us grow the show, and of course, reach new millionaire interviewees. So without any further delay, please help me welcome David to the show. David, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now? Sure. Um, I'm currently 57, recently retired live here in Alpharetta, Georgia. Um, I started my career as an application developer way back in the mid-80s, really with a local phone company. And from there, I moved into the management ranks and ultimately became a director of solutions architecture for a big data team in a Fortune 10 company. So when my wife and I first started out, as relates to investments, we had an initial goal of $5 million. And truthfully, we thought that that was just way out of reach. We didn't know there's any way that somebody could actually make that kind of money. So that sounded like a huge number to us. And we believed that if we were ever able to meet that, we could live off the interest or the capital gains of that amount and even touch the principal. So that was sort of one of our guiding principles that we had kind of early in our marriage. And we also had the thought that if we ever could reach that, then we would uh, love to retire before we turned 60. That's awesome. At, at what point did you decide $5 million was the number? How old were you and how, how many years have you been married? Uh, so I've been married uh, this year will be 32 years. Um, and I, that number just seemed like it was way out there because, quite frankly, we didn't even know any millionaires at the time. We didn't know anybody with a net worth over one million. So to, you know, 5x that and think that, hey, five million would be a, a great number to you know target. Uh, that's just something that stuck in our mind. And of course, you know, when you read things like the 10x, you know, um, by Grant Cardone and those kind of things, uh, you know, maybe we shot a little too low. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but the five million number has been a good number for us to target. Targeted when you first got married in your mid twenties. That's right. Yeah, oh, wow. we we I think I was married, you know, when I was twenty five, and um, and uh, that was, you know, it's not really a goal that we actually wrote down or anything, but it's something that we would talk about in our conversations. So those were sort of two goals that stuck with us, the $5 million number and the, hey, if at all possible, we wanted to retire on our own terms and do that before we turned 60. That's awesome. So what is your net worth today? Today, it uh, rounded up just a tad. It's right at $6.4 million. Awesome. And let's go through the breakdown of that because you're, you're pretty well diversified for our listeners. Give them an idea of how that's broken up. Sure. So we have, um, you know, cash that we use really as our emergency fund. And, and, and quite frankly, I capture everything in a spreadsheet and, and I've always been doing this, um, you know, since we first got married. And it's been very important for us to, to keep track of all of our investments and our money and so forth. Uh, so we were really diligent on a month to month basis. We, we would, you know, take out the spreadsheet and see, you know, where's our money? What do we have 
uh, left and uh, what, what's the value of it. And so we just tracked it naturally from day one all the way back then. So we have, again, the emergency fund. We, we've always been more comfortable with having a year's worth of cash that we can turn into, you know, that is our emergency fund. We, we didn't like the thoughts of a three to six months. We always thought that that was a little too low. So um, we scrolled away a full year and then uh, kind of went forward from there. We have a group of stocks and mutual funds is our next category. We probably have close to 40K in it. Um, but that's just off of a you know post-tax kind of a, a fund that I have. And typically, I've been aiming those at some kind of sector funds uh, for the moment, uh, index funds. And next, we have, let's say, about um, 36K in metals. And by that, I mean um, gold and silver. And it seems like that that's turning out to actually be somewhat an investment. I didn't treat it as an investment before. It's really more of an insurance policy. But uh, gold and silver both are, are creeping up into some pretty good numbers recently. Uh, real estate, uh, we have about 1.9 million in real estate, and that's really diversified across our primary home. We have a lake house that we've turned into a short-term rental, and then we have six other long-term rentals uh, in the local area that um, that we rent out. And then uh, we have, uh, each of us have IRAs, and this is essentially our 401ks at work that we converted into IRAs. Uh, these are about 1.44, 1.45 million each. That's for each of us. And also I have uh, deferred comp as a being a, um, the level, the director level at my company. I got to participate in some deferred compensation and that values around 600K. And that actually will start uh, being paid to me you know, starting next year. We both have uh, self-directed IRAs. These were our pensions at our company that we decided to take uh, ourselves and go ahead and get a lump sum payout. And then we're using those as investment vehicles for additional real estate opportunities as they come up. And then from there, we just have uh, some tips and some treasury inflation protected uh, savings bonds and got some of those on the side. So add all that up, it's about 6.4. That's pretty phenomenal what you all have done and accumulated over the years. Congrats to, to your success. So I want to get into the, the real estate a little bit. Do you have mortgages on, all, on any of those properties or everything paid off? Uh, it's all paid off except for two. You know, when we got into, we only got into this real estate back in 2016 when we bought our first long-term rental, and, and it was a new experience for us. And you know, when you're learning a new investment class like real estate, you try to learn as much as you can about it. So I was digging into the podcasts and to the books as much as I can learn on you know how to invest in real estate as a long-term investor. You come up with these two opposing thoughts as far as debt is concerned. You've got the Dave Ramsey side where no debt is acceptable uh, unless it's your primary home. Uh, even then, you've, you've got some restrictions on on how he likes to do it. Then you kind of have the Robert Kiyosaki side, which says uh, leverage everything because this is good debt and that uh, you should be participating as much as you can in borrowing money for real estate. I struggle between those two different thoughts, and I appreciated both of their their points of view. So we started by our first three properties we bought with debt and uh, put down 20 percent uh, on each of those. And, and then uh, soon after, got um, folks, you know, in tenants into those homes. But then the next three homes, we were able to purchase outright with cash. And that really was nice in the sense that it didn't have to go through the mortgage loan process, didn't have to pay the money to do that. Because I was paying with cash, I could close quickly and I got a better deal on the real estate by doing so. 
Um, so when it's all said and done, I appreciate my paid off property much better. And of course, I have a higher cash flow as a result. And since then, we've kind of used a, a reverse debt snowball, if you will, in the sense that as I'm collecting rents on the different properties, we're actually using it to pay off uh, some of the loans. So we paid one of those off. Now we only have two remaining. But, you know, we look forward to the day where we can get those other two paid off. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And what about your primary residence? Yeah, it's it's been paid off uh, a long time. So um, we, we, we've enjoyed that. That's awesome. How is the, the money in your IRAs, it's invested in equities, how is that divided up? Is that in bonds? Is that in, in, in stocks, mutual funds? What's the breakup there? Yeah, so uh, tell you real quick on that. So, so in the past, I've always had sort of a rule of thumb on investing. So what we did was we did it early and we did it often. As much as we could drive towards our 401k, we did, right? And so we really tried to leave 20 to 30% below our means and then use that money to throw at our uh, 401k. And and the rule of thumb I used was, is, you know, that old adage about subtracting your age from 100, and that's the amount of stocks you should have or, or bonds. Um, and then as, there, as, you, as you get older, right, you're converting and shifting more into bonds as opposed to stocks. And uh, so I just used that approach for the most part. Um, but now as we kind of got into the part where we're retiring, uh, we've had this sort of wealth accumulation phase and we're transitioning into the really wealth preservation phase. And so one of the things that kind of makes me really nervous, and I don't know if you or your other listeners have run into this, but the whole bond market, which I understand is much larger than the stock market, um, I get really nervous about bonds in the sense that the debt, you know, it is debt. And uh, with, with the coronavirus and everything that's going on, you know, I, I just kind of wonder as we're piling up debt, how are we going to pay it back or how are companies going to pay it back and so forth. And interest rates, which are, you know, inversely correlated to the, the bond prices, you know, where do interest rates go from here? Are they really going to go negative and maybe bond prices go up or are the interest rates going to go higher, which most people, I think, would say they're probably going to go higher in the future in which case the bond price is going to go down, right? So bonds make me extremely nervous. So what I have in bonds, I probably will keep there just for safety for right now. But anything else that I get, and I've got, I'm sitting on a lot of cash, I probably would start to look at throwing more toward stocks and um, you know sector funds, and um, and and not put as much into bonds as I may have in the past. Yeah, it's a it's a good answer. I appreciate you sharing. So. Just for our listeners again, you have about 1.8 in equity, right? Really, you have 800 in in self-directed bras, which is mostly real estate. So it's about 2.6 in real estate, right? And then 2.8 in the market for comp and then some metals and other stuff. So you're pretty evenly split between real estate and, and stocks, right? At least the That's right. Just curious about the evolution of your portfolio a little bit. You mentioned that you only started buying rent, not only, but you started buying rentals in 2016. And and so what was that 1.3 million doing before that? Or was that compensation that got that you received later? Or what's when did you start adding these different pieces to your portfolio? Yeah. So the, um, the way we really started in real estate, we we took our lake house, which we really had planned to be our retirement home. And it's a, it's a nice home on a lake not far from here that um, has a, a fair number of bedrooms. So when we put it, we put it up for Verbo or VRBO as a experiment. 
right? Because when we went on vacations, we used VRBO to find a place to stay at. And we just decided, hey, what would it be like if we put our place on it and, and just as an experiment, just, just wanted to see what happened. And what it turned out was, is that there was enough space where multiple families could congregate from different parts of the country. And so we would have people flying or driving from many different places. And it just turned out that it was a great meeting place for them. And so we were able to you know, charge uh, accordingly. And so we were able to take that monies and then use that uh, fast forward a couple of years, you know, into a long term rental. On top of that, some other of the monies came from uh, restricted stock, uh, stock grants that I had and some other uh, stocks that were issued to me uh, from the company. So I had been accumulated in those uh, for over 10 years and had not sold a thing. But uh, when I started to see the um, the power of the, the rental in the real estate, I started to say, OK, we need to really divert more of our resources over to real estate. And that's, again, where we're really trying to get educated and find out what's the a good approach, the best approach to take and uh, what should we aim for. And uh, so we, we had sources of the income from several places. And at the time, we both were still working. So, again, uh, a good portion of our uh, salary, if you were, will was uh, available to us to also on a on a bi-monthly basis also put towards the purchase of real estate. So we just used our current income. We used the stock grants and then the uh, rental income that we were getting at the lake house. And the Airbnbs or the VRBOs, how much are you making from those? Well, I would say um, we're making probably, you know, let's call it 50 a per year on that. Wow. Good for you. And have you seen a hit? I mean, just for our listeners, we're recording this mid to end of July, July 21st. No, we, we, we took a big hit. Uh, t- typically for us, a successful year is if we get 90 or 100 nights of stay. And uh, we were marching towards that number. But all of a sudden, when uh, COVID really started to hit and people really didn't know what to do, we started getting a lot of cancellations and it went way down. What we have seen is, is that pretty much whenever we have a cancellation, we've had somebody come behind it on another reservation. So where we're sitting right now, it might be just a hair under 100 nights for the year. But for us, it's been a, a successful year. And it turns out, right, I mean, if, you got a, if you're at a lake house and you're wanting to meet your family or extended family, uh, it, it's really a great place to get everybody together because you're not having to be exposed to anybody else, especially if you're driving in a car uh, to get there. So you're not having to go to the airports, not having to get to train stations or, you know, any other kind of facility where you're just having to meet a bunch of other people, yet you're still having to have a vacation or able to have a vacation with your family. So I'm curious on the the rentals or the homes that you purchased that you're renting out. How did you find them? <laughs> so most of ours are all retail. We have found most of ours on the, at the time it was Zillow. Um, and again, it was retail. So we were, as you might say, we were really paying full price or starting at full price when we started negotiation on those. Our first house, we, we met a gentleman uh, who's also a real estate investor. He was selling a rental. We were buying a rental and he was a real estate agent. And we used, uh, we quickly became friends and uh, we're actually partnering with him on a flip through uh, my self-directed IRA. And so we I bought uh, probably three other homes through him as a real estate agent. Um, since that time last year, my wife got her real estate agent license. And so we're actually now able to get into MLS ourselves and look for properties and, um, and, and you know, save a little bit of commissions as we do that. 
Is there a certain amount of cash that you like to keep? Is there a certain amount of cash that you say, hey, this is what I'm comfortable with, with all this other stuff going on? Yes. So both personally and from a rental perspective, right? So personally, I like to have a minimum of of 50K. Um, And what I'm learning, one of the, again, experiments that we're doing as we both are now retired is really trying to figure out how much cash do we need from an expense perspective. Um, And when it gets down to it, we can do our taxes, our insurance, our transportation, and everything on a budget right around 50K. So that's a magic number that I like to have uh, on the side uh, just for some kind of emergency. And that may be a high number, low number, I'm not sure, but uh, it, it works for us to have kind of that one year's number out there. And then for the rentals uh, in our LLC accounts, it's kind of the same thing. I've got a, um, you know, uh, we, we keep a, probably 30 to 40K worth of a cash just sitting there um, that we, you know, we could add to our, uh, what I would call my retained earnings or my cash flow. On, and that's the, the money that would actually be ours part of the, the rent payments uh, to either pay down debt or, you know, to save to the, uh, for any kind of emergency that we have. So I'd like to have 30 or 40K set aside for any kind of emergencies uh, across the multiple homes. It's interesting because I think that's something we always talk about is how much to keep, right? And especially some of these real estate investors, as they start investing, how much should they keep in each home, right? Or for reserves, rather, for each property. So right. Just curious to get your take there. So you mentioned you're, you're 57, right? Your net worth is 6.4, 6.5, somewhere around there. When did you reach your first million and, and how soon after did the other millions come? Yeah, it's really funny. I mentioned earlier that it was always important for us to keep a monthly check on our net worth, right? Um, and, and so for the all the longest part of our career, it's always net worth, net worth. We're tracking our net worth. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to get into real estate was to sort of convert, pivot over to more cash flow, right? As so we're getting closer to retirement, we wanted to know what our cash flow numbers uh, are. And so another chart that we built on top of our numbers as we were collecting was a marker that says at this day, this is when we got a million. All right. This is the when we hit the second million. Here's when we hit the third million and so forth. So we hit the first million back in December of 99, uh, right before the turn of the century, I guess. And I've got overlaid on this chart is a chart of the number of years it took to hit that million. And it was 11 years, 11.17 years to hit it. And then again, as the numbers move forward in time, we hit our second million in, uh, let's like around January 05. And that took us six and a half years. So we went from 11 years getting us to the first million, almost cut in half to get us, you know, six or so years to get us to a second million. And then we, in the, the last million, the sixth million that we got only took us two and a half years to move from five million to six million. So it was uh, really interesting to see the impact of kind of once you start building assets and the assets start building upon each other, really the, I guess, the uh, the compounded effect, you know, that, that you have on money, making money. But I don't have any, you know, I didn't have any hard data, didn't really understand necessarily what that meant. And so that just kind of started the journey. And again, I kind of wanted to go from net worth into income. So how do you do that? I didn't want to be in a position that if all we had were stocks and bonds and we retired, you know, I built my lifetime of building this up. But then I'm going to start to spend 20 to hopefully, you know, everybody willing 30 to 30 years uh, taking that money out. 
I didn't want to be in a position to get toward the end of our lives. And we just all we've done is sort of spend the money and the worth that we've built up over time. So real estate seemed to provide a good answer to that, where you had an asset, it provided an income, but it also went up in value. And so that really struck a nerve with me and something I really wanted to find out, you know, is it true? Does it really work that way? Uh, what, what are the problems that come up with real estate? But um, it, 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 the problems that at least I read through weren't enough to stop me from doing it right and taking action and actually buying some. Yeah, to- totally agree with you there. I- I'm curious on the lake house, just to continue on the real estate path, the lake house. When did you say, hey, I, I, I want the second home and, and was it always a rental? Or did it not start that way? Did it just start as a second home and then turned into a rental when you're not using it? Yeah, we we bought it back in 07 and we had no thoughts whatsoever about, you know, rental real estate back then. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I think we yeah, we bought it at the very peak. It was um, April or May of 07. And then I think probably in June when things started to fall. So bad timing on my part on that. But uh, but it's provided us a lot of income since then. But anyway, we bought it in 07. We didn't rent it out the first year until 15, 2015. And again, it was just on a whim. I, I asked my wife, hey, why don't we try this? You know, the worst thing that can happen is somebody tears up our walls, uh, leave the place trash and so forth. And that's why we have insurance. So, you know, we're, we're spending money when we go on vacations to stay in people's homes. Why don't we see what this is like for us? And, you know, is this a positive or a negative? And I got to tell you, yeah, sure, there's been a couple of, you know, interesting things. But for the most part, it's just been overwhelming positive for us. And again, we've been able to take the 50K per year and then redirect that into, you know, additional assets, which, again, you know, just just really helps us in the long run. Yeah. What bad experiences with it? Just curious. Well, actually, the the worst thing that's happened, um, again, we, it sleeps 18 people. and um, it's on a well in, in a uh, septic tank. Imagine getting a call that the toilets aren't working anymore. None of them. The, there's no water. And so what had happened is, is that the well ran dry. <laughs> and so that was a that will kind of put a little fear in you when you get that kind of a call. Right. So Because it's like, well, what do you do to fix that in a hurry? Right. So, David, one question, or let me ask first your your range of income. What's been your? I know you mentioned earlier you you guys both had higher salaries. What's been the range of income uh, through your working life for both you and your wife? Well, I guess we started back in mid eighties, probably around twenty five k. And when I retired, my base salary was one seventy five, and I would say my wife's was probably right at one twenty. Okay, so all in, maybe at the peak, you were at about three hundred, right? So one thing I'm just curious on, I think a lot of high income earners face this question. And so I'm just curious to ask you, how do you decide, hey, I'm going to take my time and I'm going to really drive into my career and I'm going to try and continually grow in my career and move up or switch companies and move up, right? Versus, hey, I'm going to take that time, that money that I'm earning from my high income job and that time and I'm going to go try and build up my investments on the side. Right. Because you have infinite, infinite time. So how do you decide, hey, I'm going to plow it into my career or I'm going to plow it into investments so that I can do my own thing? How do you make that? How do you do that? Yeah, I tell you, that's a really good and tough question. And I can, you know, certainly state it from my, my personal per- perspective and what, you know, what I did. And then that, you know, if you kind of look at the span of your career and where I was five years ago, meaning I was with the company about 30 years 
you can ask the question, you know, what are my prospects for going further up the management chain? And also kind of what, what is the uh, kind of a want of, of where you are? Meaning, you know, am I still enjoying the job the way I used to? Am I getting everything that I can out of my career it, versus, you know, what could I be doing uh, on my own uh, from, from an investment perspective? And I guess, again, as I was getting closer to retirement, I like the idea of sort of being more control over my money and that I didn't want it necessarily in, in the spots that it was. I wanted to be able to move it. So I wanted to learn as much as I can about investment. So what I did was I did take you know, some of the time uh, in the evenings and so forth to learn as much as I can about the alternatives like real estate. So, it, again, it's a good question for uh, people as they're getting further into their careers and uh, be interested to see how what a you know choices that a lot of other people make. It's just something interesting to think about as high income earners because I think that people are starting more and more to shift away from day jobs, right, and try and earn an income on the side as much as they can. And people value flexibility, I think, more than ever. That's right. So, did you have a, a net worth goal? You, you mentioned that five million at the beginning. Is there is there something you want to get to now? Well, when I hit six, um, that was sort of a, also a magic moment when we thought that, hey, that, you know, we, we've gone well beyond where we thought we would be and we can retire. And, and so that helped facilitate, you know, our decisions that when a voluntary offer came out, you know, we took it and, and, and we retired. I would love as we move forward to, to be able to keep the net worth that we have and continue to build upon it. And then live again, as I maybe stated earlier, off the uh, particular income and capital gains that uh, the money can make for us or the net worth can make for us. So and, and, and we don't spend lots of money uh, needlessly. So we're fairly frugal people. So I can actually see that happening where, you know, as we pass away, you know, our net worth might be a good deal higher. And we would love for that to be because um, we do have a plan from a legacy perspective of, you know, splitting some of the money. Right now, it's kind of three ways. Two of those would be to our kids. And then another way we'd like to maybe start an endowment at the university I went to, that we both went to, and our, our church and so forth. So we want to do uh, some good in the giving uh, related to that money and, and make a, a positive impact with that, with some other organizations as well as to, you know, kind of help our family tree as, as it continues to grow. Yeah. How, on the giving side, how do you decide, A, how much to give and then B, who to give to? It's a question we've asked on the show, and I think there's been some good answers, but I think that's something that all of our millionaires struggle with in a sense, right, to know who to give and how much to give. Right, right. And then I think for us, it's it's what's important to us. And, and right now, um, we're, we're volunteers for our, our church. Uh, so there's going to be some you know, giving to it. But as far as how much and you know exactly those kind of numbers don't know yet. And um, again, it's certainly kind of had in the back of my mind. Education is just so important in our society today that, um, you know, I, I just kind of would love to be able to provide a number of scholarships uh, to the university. That would allow people to attend that normally would not be able to attend because they couldn't afford it. Um, so in the back of my mind, I've kind of got this thing about uh, being able to provide that uh, mechanism, that vehicle for people to get an education. And so, again, would love to set something up that allows for that to happen. Uh, matters to us as far as the education goes. We, we've always believed in education in our church. So those are the two big ones. And those things mean something to us. And I think for anybody else, too, it's just, you know, what are you passionate about and what are the things that you want to see grow? past your living, right? And uh, what are those things and target those? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good answer. And, and just in closing here, you mentioned you're recently retired, right? Age 57. Along with that, do you wish you would have retired earlier? Are you glad when you retired? Or is there anything that stood out to you since you've been retired? No. Well, it's so COVID has made it interesting, right? That we haven't been able to travel as much as we would like to. But I think we targeted it perfectly, quite frankly, because when the management offer came out and, and I was thinking about it, I, I posed a question. If I'm in myself five years from now or 10 years from now, would I look back and say, I wish I stayed at work or I, w- I should have gone ahead and retired? And every time I ask myself that question, it, it always came up, you should retire. So for me personally, it was just no debate about it. And uh, I think the timing was great. Uh, we still have our health. We, again, we, we you know, want to get into the, some things about uh, to do travel when, when those restrictions get lifted and so forth. And um, again, we've kind of gotten into doing some flips. We just uh, sold our first one. And uh, so that turned out pretty well. Look forward to doing some more and, and really just kind of learning a whole new set of skills, both from an investment standpoint and also from a, uh, you know, kind of a, a rehab perspective. So I'm looking forward to what we can learn as we move forward. Yeah. And jumping back to your allocation, I don't think we talked about this, but Jason, I said before the call, and I know we talked about this before we started recording. I think the 2.8 million in a 401k is the most we've ever seen on this show. So how did you build that up? Was it you and your wife maxing it out each year or was there something else special going on there? No, it was simply that. Um, again, we live way below our means and in, to an order, probably 20 to 30 percent uh, that we have as far as, you know, what we can continue to put away. And then that's what we did. Now, at the time, we didn't have a Roth 401k. So the vast majority of our money is uh, pre-tax. Um, so over the next few years, I do want to look at converting some of that over to the Roth IRA. But yeah, there was just a, we maxed out as much as we could. And of course, you know, once we turned 50, we were able to put in what five or six thousand more on top of uh, what you normally can give. So, again, we were probably putting in 25K or close to 25K each each year. Right. So um, as much as we could put in there, we continue to drop the money in. And are you happy with the amount you have in or are you looking to self-direct more of that? I mean, it's pretty amazing, right? Three million dollars in a 401k. Yeah. Um, so at the moment, I'm happy with it. A large part, we didn't talk about this, but a large part of mine, my 401, my, my IRA at the moment is actually cash and a stroke of luck. I actually called to move my money from Fidelity to Vanguard the day before the COVID hit the market. I don't know what day that was back in March. I think it was. It was on a Monday. That Friday beforehand, I closed out the account where they sent me or sent you know Vanguard the, the check to move uh, over to them. So I got lucky and didn't experience the real downturn. And and so I've been kind of afraid to stick that money back in. Now I did stick probably half of it into the number of index funds, but I still am sitting a little cash. So I'm going to have to take that and decide what I want to do with it. And most likely, I'm just going to a dollar cost average that back into the market over the next 12 months. Yeah, it's really amazing. And the savings rate, you said that was about 20 to 30%. Correct. Good for you. So just in closing, I know we're, we're running really high on times or low on time. So let me just uh, ask you a couple. Have you ever used a financial advisor? I have not. Okay. What's been the most expensive car you've ever purchased? I tell you the Tundra I have right now, probably about 50. Say 50,000? Uh, 52,000. Yeah. 52. Okay. Any, any debt? 
Did you have any student loans or car debt early on? I guess I'm, I'm assuming none now besides the mortgages. Um, I had a little bit of student loan. It was probably 2500 when I got out of school, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it was a lot to me back then. But when we got married, we paid all that off uh, immediately. And, um, and and I think one of the ways that we don't you know get into trouble is that we always save cash for our next car. Um, so we, we haven't had a monthly car payment since 89. For you. So just in closing here, David, I mean, we talked about it earlier, net worth over $6 million, You're pretty evenly split, right? About three and three if you count the self-directed IRA in real estate. What advice, if you could go back, would you give yourself or give somebody else who's just starting out their career and, and says, wow, I want to I wanna be like that guy, right? I've got, he's got $3 million in his IRA or his 401k, rather. He's got a few million dollars in real estate. He's going to live off passive income. He's, he's retiring earlier than the classic retirement age. How does somebody do that? What advice would you give? Well, I would say, you know, be aware and be tenacious in the sense that I would want everybody to get educated, you know, for the longest time, you know, we've kind of put things away and, and just forgot it, right? Meaning, yep, we would uh, automatically contribute to our 401k and kind of forget about it in a sense that we never touched it. But I would say, you know, don't stop your learning, you know, find multiple competing investment opinions and you decide what is true to you. I think, it, you know, education is how we got into real estate. And once we did that, you know, our net worth of the last few years is sort of, you know, really escalated as a result of that. So whatever you do, get educated, stay with it, be resilient and, um, you know, just make it uh, um, an important part of your life to keep track of uh, what you got going on. Yeah, really good answer. Well, thanks so much, David. Really appreciate it, everybody. That's David. Net worth of about $6.4 million. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.